I would love to get on a call with Wiley just to share with him as a Jew of colour why his comments were so hurtful and how he put a target on my back. He literally put a target on my back. From a Jewish perspective, um, I've got a target on my back as a Jew and I've also got a target on my back as a person of colour. And he rubbed it in. And I'd love to have that conversation with him so that he can fully understand just how harmful and divisive his language was. Hello and welcome to Pivot Points. We are your hosts, Gabby Miller and Amelia Sabawal. We are both professional coaches, so in between recording mind-bending podcasts, we can usually be found supporting our clients through their leadership and life challenges. We have been fascinated by a theme we have seen recurring in our coaching practices, a misconception that success is a steady upward trajectory or a straightforward path. In this podcast, we take our guests on a retrospective. We explore how success is found in the pivots taken, how our guests live, learn and grow in moments of perceived failure or insurmountable obstacles. We delve into their mindset, perspective and choices at the time and what it has taught them in the long run. Our hope is that what you take from the podcast is that these twists and turns are an inevitable part of your life course and no matter how they feel at the time, with hindsight, you too will look back on them with a new lens. During this episode, Sarah uses some Yiddish words. So we wanted to give a little Yiddish to English translation at the top of the episode. She talks about the Shoah, which is the Holocaust. She talks about Shul, which is a synagogue. And she talks about Pesach, which is the festival of Passover. Sarah Castro, MBE, has over 20 years' experience working with charities, local authorities, and in social housing. Sarah has worked in some of London's most disadvantaged communities and is currently an independent advisor to the Metropolitan Police during critical incidents and acts as an independent observer on high-level operations. She also works with the Trident Gangs Unit on their community engagement strategy, Sarah is values-driven and experienced in mediation and facilitating dialogue. As a black Jew, she joins us today to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement, Wiley's recent anti-Semitic commentary, and how the Jewish and black communities have more in common than sets them apart. This, amongst a great many other subjects from her vast experiences in social enterprise, And you'll soon learn that Sarah has an insatiable energy, so we just dive straight in. Enjoy the ride. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I guess the the thing that I was really interested in is we wanted to speak to someone about whether this whole current uprising of the Black Lives Matter is going to be pivotal, Mm. or if it's another, just another chapter. Mm. And then also, obviously, with what's happened with Wiley, about the experience of this kind of the racism and the anti-Semitism, and they are taking such different forms, and are they being pitted against each other? 
I've been on calls yesterday with, um, I won't name them, but somebody who is with the Holocaust Memorial Trust and I've been on calls with other Jewish friends and on calls with black friends. So is this a pivotal moment? Absolutely. Um, it's been a pivotal moment for me because if you can imagine, I mean, I'm 60 years old next birthday. And what? when, yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> when you think that so many things that have happened in my Jewish life, in my just black life and whatever. I grew up in East Africa, by the way. So I don't have a sense of slavery from a African or African Caribbean perspective. But my sense of my understanding of slavery comes from Pesach. So I've always felt that I've had an affinity with people who were slaves because, okay, okay, every year now we unpack what is keeping me a slave now and try to deal with that, you know, use Pesach, Pesach as a period to deal with that. But I've always felt a great affinity with slavery, but I have, don't feel that affinity with people of African and Caribbean community because I haven't experienced it. And I don't have that in my lineage. In, I do have it in my lineage, obviously, but I don't have it in my immediate lineage. So... One of the things that I found really helpful was this book. And it's mm. called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Mm. And it unpacks, so it talks about if you have something dramatic happen, and she uses the example of 9-11, that the people who were in the 9-11 recovered quite quickly, but those who were more distanced from it, say several generations, will be growing up with trauma there was not their trauma. Now, I know this about my mother from um, my grandfather. She carried his trauma of the Shoah. She carried that with her. And she would stockpile food. She would do all these sorts of things that were related to that trauma. And so she passed them down to me. So I had to deal with a lot of anxieties growing up that I inherited from a mother who gave those anxieties to me. They didn't belong to me. They didn't belong in my world, but they were very much part of what was going on with me. And so when we look at slavery, so people were enslaved for 400 years and the dreadful things that happened to them during slavery. So the castrations on, this, on the plantations of the men, so that the only people to father children would be the slave owners. That's why you get these very fair-skinned people people of different complexions coming through. You see this very much in African and Caribbean communities. But all of the trauma of that slavery was passed down. So you'll have mothers giving birth to children that they know that Massa might sell in a few years' time or now. So I can't bond with my child. You'll have men around that feel completely detached from those children. And if they did, as slaves, manage to father children, they're not going to bond with them because they don't know what's going to be the, their future. And you see this passed down generation after generation after generation. And so what are, as she explains in the book, um, Dr. Joy, what are the symptoms of post-traumatic syndrome, um, anxiety, quick to lose your temper, difficulty sleeping, susceptible to addictions, susceptible to aggression and violence. Mm. And 
we now see these things, unfortunately, there's become a stereotype around uh, African-American and African-Caribbean people that, oh, they're violent, oh, they're lazy, they're this, they're that. All of these stereotypes are built, built up around them. And so we're talking about millions of traumatized people that suddenly can talk about what's been happening to them all of their lives because people are now listening. And so everything is coming out. Everything is coming out. Um, I know that from my own perspective, I've been letting a lot of stuff out that I've never let out to anybody before about microaggressions around race, particularly within the Jewish community. And what has it what has it been like to suddenly have this voice? Painful, mm. because it means going back inside and mm. unlocking the safe where you kept mm. those painful, traumatic experiences and processed them and dealt with them internally. What can often happen when you experience those sorts of aggressions? When you live in a world that tells you everything about you is wrong, that you're going to have to work twice as hard as anybody else just to be considered equal or normal. And what will happen is you'll either bury these things inside you and won't talk about them, or you will process them internally, whereby you turn that on yourself. So you were talking before about imposters. I have imposters that were created by those traumatic experiences and my way of dealing with it, I've given them names. And so when a particular talk, ah, hi, there you are. And I've got names for those things that say, oh, they're never going to do this. Oh, they're never going to let you hear say that. Oh, they're never going to listen to you. So, of course. So a lot of people, particularly black people, we have processed this and internalized it and turned it on ourselves. And that hatred has turned inside ourselves. And so when we go to Wiley, for example, mm. now it's not, I'm not qualified to pathologize, nor am I right to cast aspersions about anybody's health. But for me, knowing Wiley, I don't know him personally, but I have a few friends that do know him. It was like watching a car crash. He was having an episode. Are you familiar with Wiley and the, the things he does generally? You know, the Wiley Stormzy clash and things like that that happened last year. I'm actually not familiar with that. I only heard about him for the first time with everything that's happened. Which is a real shame because you're seeing a man at his worst, in pain, in anger, and he's unlocked that safe and it's all coming out and the mistake rather than making it personal about him and his manager who clearly have a problem with each other, he took it to his manager's religion. That's where he went wrong. You can say whatever you want about your manager in the relationship you have with him, but when you make that about his religion and when you include everybody else within that, that's where you're letting not yourself down, you're letting everybody down, and it was just a car crash. So. Yes, everything he did and said was completely unforgivable. What to, but, but I'm putting that in the context of Wiley's having an episode. What to me was the worst part were the comments and the supporters. 
who were supporting the things he said. And I wrote something about this on my Facebook page. I got up in the morning. I hadn't even had coffee before I realized what was going on. And I was literally like a clicktivist, they call it, instead of an activist. I spent the entire day, didn't brush my teeth, didn't wash my face, didn't change out of my night clothes until like 11 o'clock at night. I'm still um, battling with people um, on there. Since then, I've gone back and had a look and one person who was saying particularly vile comments whose symbol was the black power symbol. When I went back and had a look at that person's account, they were following 16 people but had no followers. So that tells me they set up that account just to say horrible things on, on, the, on the Instagram account. But also I went back the other day just to have a look at what they was up to and that black power symbol has now changed to a union jack. So I'm now very suspicious about the people, some of the people that would have been commenting on that because the, you know, the cognitive distance that I go through watching a black man spout white supremacist hate, thinking, what is going on here? How can that possibly be happening? And I just think, what a clever trick. What a clever trick to pitch the African community against the Jewish community. How clever is that? Because as black people and as Jews, people like to hate us. When I talk about anti-Semitism, um, a lot of things often is said to me by young black people, how come that we have to tolerate all this racism, but when it comes to anti-Semitism, people, you know, the world falls down on you when you say anything anti-Semitic. And my answer to that it's because anti-Semitism has been around a lot longer than anti-blackness. A lot longer. So when we're talking about anti-Semitism, unfortunately, most people only learn about anti-Semitism in secondary school as part of the Holocaust. Mm. So they think everything started with the Shoah. And all of a sudden, these people who in the last, you know, in, in the re this decade, this hundred years, I've had these dreadful things happen to them, but, every, but, but there are so many systems in place in order to prevent that from happening and to prevent hate speech towards Jewish people. But we, we've had thousands of years to put those things together. I mean, when I talk to them about, well, do you know about the Greek occupation? Do you know about the Roman occupation? Do you know about this? Do you know about that? Do you know about the Crusaders going on their summer holidays across Europe because they were too chicken to go to the Middle East? So they decided to go and kill, murder Jews in different parts of Europe. Do you know anything about that story? Nobody knows about those stories. In the same way as large sections of our population don't understand the depravity and the dehumanization of slavery. So this is where it's about education and it's about how educated people are around hatred and how hatred has played out throughout the centuries. So, yeah, it's um, they're interesting conversations. And it's a lot of the young people I speak to, when you explain that to them, their perspective changes immediately. It's about the lack of information. That's why they're saying these things. And I would love to get on a call with Wiley just to share with him as a Jew of colour, you know, as a black why his comments were so hurtful 
and how he put a target on my back. He literally put a target on my back. From a Jewish perspective, um, I've got a target on my back as a Jew, and I've also got a target on my back as a person of colour. And he rubbed it in. And I'd love to have that conversation with him so that he can fully understand just how harmful and divisive his language was that particular weekend. You've just touched on something that I think I've been thinking a lot about since everything happens with Wiley, which is that I feel it's a very dangerous narrative that the Jews are being sort of painted as the baddie in this, in the racism we're experiencing here and globally is a systemic problem. It's not the Jews as the oppressor. And I, I feel that's quite a scary narrative because it, it, it almost puts Jews in a place where you can't stand with black people. No, that you can. That um, one of the conversations I've been having with some of the people that deal with um, Holocaust Memorial and those other things is that we actually have more in common than we don't have in common. Um, One of the other fantastic books that I've been reading and I've just written a review on is this one, How Did Jews Become White People? Wow. How Did Jews Become White People and What That Says About Race in America? So there was a time in history when Jews, uh, uh, Puerto Ricans and African-Americans and Irish people, we were all classified as non-white. And there's, you have to, I'm not going to, no spoilers here. You have to read the book if you really want to know how Jews became white people. But uh, just the only hint I'll give is it's perked my interest in trade unionism and, and organising. But um, some of the narratives that are being fed about Jews and relation to black people are just, just terrible. So we need to have some conversations. We need to have some conversations. And as I wrote in the first piece that I wrote about Wiley and um, anti-Semitism, I was just a quick report on some of the calls and conversations I got into with young people of Caribbean origin. And that was, um, is it true the Jews funded the slave trade? And I've had to say, very possibly because there was a time in history when Jews were not allowed to have any form of commerce outside of the Jewish community other than money lending. So as we know, in the Christian communities, usury was something that they weren't allowed to do. So they weren't allowed to lend each other money and have usury, but it was okay to borrow money from the Jews because they weren't quite considered people. So yes, you can borrow money from them. Jews were only allowed to have commerce within their own shuttles. They were only allowed to buy and sell things amongst themselves. They weren't allowed to sell outside. Money lending was the only thing that was able to do. Didn't we have one of the British kings who wanted to borrow a load of money to go to war with the French or the Spanish? And the, he allowed the Jews into Britain in order to borrow that money. And then when it came time to pay it back, they decided to have a pogrom and kick everybody out and murder a few people. So, so there's every possibility that money was borrowed from Jewish communities in order to fund the, the building of ships and the transatlantic slave trade. But 
But we have to have that conversation and have it within the context of Jewish history and why that would have been. There's nothing inherent about Judaism that says that it's acceptable to do that. In fact, quite the reverse, because we're all about coming out of slavery and treating people with dignity, even, you know, befriending the stranger and treating the stranger with dignity. So um, those are the sorts of conversations we're having. Someone asked me, is it true Jews are racist? And I said, yes, some of them are. The same as everybody else in every other society. Just because you might have one that is, it doesn't mean to say that everybody is and start to have that conversation. Mm. Um, somebody asked me, why is it that when we talk about um, you raise anything to do with the Jews and slavery, it's considered anti-Semitic? And I had to point out that, um, yes, Jews were slave owners as well. There's actual interesting research into how slaves in the Caribbean fared under Jewish slave ownership as opposed to other ownership. So yes, Jews did. But so did everybody else own slaves. So why are we singling out Jews in terms of slave ownership? Mm. And that's where it becomes anti-Semitic, where you try to single out a group of people. And just going back to that book for a second, the um, How Did Jews Become White People? The white supremacists that created the whole divisive racial classifications, it was in their interest to maintain some of these narratives. And some of the bizarre things I hear people saying sound strange because they're coming out of the mouth of a young black person. But were it to come out of a white person, I'd know exactly where they got it from. This is white supremacist speak. And when you're here, it doesn't matter who you're hearing it from, this white supremacist narrative, which if it isn't against the Jews, it's against the black people, that's where it's coming from. So it, we've all been infected with it. Everybody has been infected with it. And that's why it's so important that we tackle it and we challenge it and we pluck up the courage to have those difficult conversations. I'm interested, the, the experience of, actually Jews and black people having more in common than than they do that differentiates them and both have been subject to racism but yes. it's it's portrayed very differently so yeah. black people have been subject to systemic racism which yeah. has hindered their social mobility whereas yeah. Jews are subject to a falsehood that they're somehow privileged in society yeah. so I'm interested as someone who has a foot in both camps how how you experience that racism when it's so paradoxical. Mm. You said that, um, you mentioned there that it's systemic racism. It isn't always systemic. Sometimes it's actually full on and in your face. Mm. And I can give you an example in the Jewish community. This is one that I haven't shared publicly before, but I'll share with you. Um, so in Shul, I love Shul, and I would be there first thing, because I didn't want to miss anything as part of all those three services. I mean, I just love Shul. I love reading of the law. I love everything about it. And it was said to me in Shul, why don't you step up and do more things inside Shul? You know, be, get more involved in the community. So I went and did the CST training so that I could participate in doing security. I thought that would be, everybody else was doing it, then I could take my turn and do it. And I went along to the training, which was done in a different place. 
And there was people from all sorts of schools and the training was fantastic. In fact, I've reshared that training with people, just general, useful information about keeping yourself safe. But towards the end of the training, when the trainer was doing the wrap up and giving us some examples as to how we would deploy this new information, this new security skills in particular settings, every single example he drew on, he put a black person in the frame. And he told a story about, I was once at so-and-so and so-and-so, and and there was a black person acting in a very strange way. Then went on to another story when he was giving security to someone important in the community, and they was in the Marks and Spencers in Brent, and then these black people were doing so-and-so, and and then these Arab people-looking people were doing so-and-so and so-and-so. Luckily, a member of my shul said, wait, 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 this has got to stop and stopped him in his tracks in front of everybody and said, this is unacceptable. At that moment, I got my second reassurance that I was in exactly the right shawl because it meant that I didn't need to do that. Because also, I don't know if I had the courage in that room full of white people to challenge this man about the things he was saying, but she did have the courage to step up and challenge him. But afterwards, when I talk to black Jews, all of them, our shared experience is the difficulty we have getting into Jewish spaces mm-hmm. because we're questioned, our, our Jewish identities are questioned and challenged. It's a can be a triggering experience just going through the security that don't know you to get into shore. Once they know you, it's fine. But the first time, or when there's somebody new on security, and, and I started thinking, if all black, black Jews that I know, we have this shared common experience of having difficulty getting into Jewish spaces, and all the shuls in London and Jewish spaces have received the same training, is it any wonder that we're having difficulty getting into Jewish spaces? And so... I think as Jews, yes, we're very conscious of the area where we're feeling under threat. We're very conscious of anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism comes in all forms and all colours. It isn't just brown people that pose the risk, but you would think so. And also, if all the security volunteers have gone through the same training and dispersed that knowledge and information within their families, or is it any wonder that black people are feared and that are feared within Jewish spaces. So I'm a little bit disappointed that um, we're not making more effort to reach out to all the Jews of colour. So Craig David has been talking in the news today. I had no idea that Craig Craig David was a Jew. I had absolutely no idea. I'm filled to bits of years. You know, we've got Drake... We have some pretty high-profile black Jews, and I just think the first, our first task is to find them because if, when they were growing up, they had those experiences going into Jewish spaces. I've met black Jews that have walked away from Judaism as a result of the racist experiences they have received within Jewish spaces, and 
personally, I don't know how you walk away from Judaism because I can't separate the Jew, the Jew from my being. I can't separate that. I would never be able to walk away ever. I might have difficulty with for any reason, God forbid it never happens, that I had to find another shul. Uh, that would be a traumatic experience, but I would do it because I can't separate my Jewishness from my, I, it's core to who I am in my identity. But people have. And, mm. and I am a God. One, how did they do it? Two, can we not reach out to them at this time when we know who they are and say, maybe that was your experience 30 years ago or things are now changing. What is, is great is that so many of these conversations are happening now within Jewish spaces. In fact, more conversations about race and Black Lives Matter are happening in Jewish spaces than they are anywhere else. So it's safe for people to come back and share their experiences. And I'd love it if... Um, we could hold up black Jews because we're, we're the secret weapon. We're the Trojan <laughs> horse. I feel like a Trojan horse. I can get into the heart of conversations yeah. undetected and I'm then there to deal with things when they come up. I, I'm saying that now. It's always been the case. So... People will say things in front of me because their perception of the Jewish community is this white group of you know, white group of people. And so things would often be said in front of me to me that they never imagined for a million years that I was Jewish. Um, and I'm able to challenge them. I'm refining and improving my technique on how I challenge them. Because by, in the early days, it would be freak out. And I've realized, actually, what I want to do is I want to take people with me. And I want to help people just see a different perspective and allow that shift to take place inside themselves. I, my, the best thing I can do is plant some seeds. And so I meet so many young uh, black people in London and say, you're the only Jewish person I've ever met. You're the first Jewish person I've ever met, and you're the only Jewish person I have ever met. So in those arenas, I feel like I have to rep. So I have to rep for my people. And I have to do this properly, and I have to do this with compassion, understanding, understanding they may be carrying trauma, generational trauma with them, that has been infected with an anti-Semitism. So I have to understand it from that perspective. And I have to understand that once I start this conversation with them, I want this conversation to be able to continue with them. So I have to do it from a place of compassion, but I have to challenge. So many years ago, I made myself a promise to myself that if ever... I come across anti-Semitism, I will always challenge it. Interesting. I haven't always been the same about racism, but I've always been like that around anti-Semitism. Now I have to make that commitment to myself that whenever I come across racism, I'm going to challenge it in the same way as I have always challenged anti-Semitism. 
And maybe I haven't always challenged racism because it's just felt too big for me to take on. And I'm going to get ostracized or I'm going to trigger people. I'm going to have to come back and face this. This could potentially cost me my job. This could potentially cost me something. Whereas, interesting, <coughs> challenging anti-Semitism would never cost me any of those things. But challenging racism has cost me those things. So I was, I'm interested in, you've been doing this work for 20 years, and I also mm. want to hear about your work. Mm. But I, with the rise of social media and everyone having this platform mm. to be able to air their views, is that, do you see that as a good thing or... Is it good that they're not behind closed doors, that we, we know if people feel this way, or is it creating this, like, is it making it acceptable in a way? Okay, so I think social media is a double-edged sword. The horse has bolted. Mm. There's no going back and closing the stable door. The horse has bolted. And I think, actually, social media... I have kind of different views on social media. I think there should be age limits because social media is used to groom children for, and harm young people. It, social media sites are also used to radicalise, be that radicalised for um, any form of radicalisation. I've got a great friend who used to actually be one of the organisers for Combat 18, uh, the, an international front and a Nazi complete with tattoos and everything else um, and I've done a lot of work with him and also invited him into communities to talk about the techniques that the far right use to radicalize people um, and social media is one of those ways that they will they will do it so but I think I would sooner have them out on social media where everyone can see them and can challenge them and can um, wrap around the young people that have been taking on some of this narrative and, get, and, and support them, rather than have them, as they were, setting up food banks in some of our most deprived neighbourhoods, handing out food packages to poor families. Um, you know, child poverty is a huge issue in this country. So the far right at one point were doing that. And befriending communities and starting to get into conversations with communities. You know, if it wasn't for these people, your mum wouldn't have be dying of cancer. She'd get the treatment that she needs. And if it wasn't for those people, we wouldn't have that. So once they finish with the black people, I know for a fact they're coming for the Jews. So this is why we have to be together on this and we have to support people even the ones that are pumping out the garbage that Wiley was pumping out is to understand that that form of radicalization happened in the most deprived neighborhoods of London that I know about and Birmingham and other parts of the country. So they would have been fed a different narrative, that, that narrative of, oh, they can't say, oh, it's the black people that are taking your jobs to groups of black people, but they can say, it's the Jews controlling all of this. That's why you're having the problem. So do you see what's going on there? This is a white supremacist agenda and a white supremacist narrative that has infected the, that community and will continue to infect those communities until 
we can get in and start to have those conversations and dismantle some of the things. The things I love about being a Jew of colour is I just have to put my head above the parapet to dismantle half their arguments and not even say anything. <laughs> the fact I exist means yeah, half their argument, arguments <laughs> has fallen to pieces. What I would be helpful is if my Jewish community backed me up and said, mm. yes, she's a Jew. Yes, she is one of us. That will, and all other Jews of colour, that would be really helpful. If um, I know it's a fact, you would you don't even need to do, do that. You just need to acknowledge and promote the fact, like happened today with the Jewish news, that you know Craig David is a Jew. I had all kinds of people calling and responding. Craig David is a Jew. How can that be? How can he be Jewish the same way that I'm Jewish? What? It's not a you know, it's not a skin tone thing. It's just, we're talking about our faith and the culture that sits around our faith. So I think that would be really helpful. Speaking of books that yes. you're, you're recommending, may, yeah. I, I don't know if you um, have read White Fragility yes. by Robin D'Angelo, and so much of what you're saying is, is the education that I've had from her in that book. Yeah. Um, the whitewashing of history. Yeah. I mean, I... I was listening to the book actually as I went, and I must say I, I had to stop a lot yeah. and visibly almost uh, dry wretch at quite a lot of the very hard-hitting stats mm. around how brainwashed we've been. And as you're speaking about, you know, the Jewish community, yes, they had gone to the same training as you, but what they've also been subjected to is however many years they've been alive from the year dot, a yeah. completely whitewashed yeah. version of our lives. Of course we've erased colonialism. Yeah. It just doesn't suit us anymore right. in this country. Of course we've, you know, stopped. No, we, we won't see anything about black Jews on our documentaries, yeah. thank you very much. There's not enough of them. You know, like yeah. where would the audience be? It's not yeah. of interest. It's, we've just been brainwashed from the year dot. Yeah. Interesting. In the early 2000s, um, when I returned to live in the UK from a time in Latin America and, uh, and Spain, um, I did some training with um, an organization um, which was about bringing about peace in the world. Um, I'm trying to remember their name now. I should remember it. But they actually brought in Bill Clinton's advisor on race relations to be one of our trainers and trained us in how to hold dialogue. And it's not easy to hold dialogue. So um, yes, we can challenge, but what I want is dialogue. So I don't just want to shoot someone down for that thing they said there. Mm. I want to have dialogue with this person. And, that, and how do I create, how do I talk to them in a way where this can be, part of a process of dialogue rather than a put down and because the thing is this is the thing that I learned when you challenge somebody harshly on beliefs that they hold you will automatically make them defensive mm. and when you put somebody into a defensive position they're going to hold on even tighter to that thing that they were holding than they were holding before so Sometimes the aggressive challenge can be the worst possible thing you can do because all you're doing is you're knocking that stake in even harder. 
what you want to do is to be able to hold the space yourself, sit with the uncomfort yourself of what the person is saying, and then try to work out where it's coming from. Try, so sometimes things will be said to me, and I'll do that. I'll sit with the uncomfort in the conversation with them and just try to work out where it's coming from. Sometimes it's coming from the best possible place. It's it, it so speaks to the the way forward, really, what you're saying, because actually what it feels like we're in a climate at the moment where if someone has a different view to you they're cancelled or they're you know blocked and or you just they get a barrage of abuse and what you're saying is actually that just cements their views further yeah, yeah. what yeah. we need to do is is encourage a dialogue exactly and that's what I would love to have had with Wiley a conversation a conversation where we can hold the space. I'll sit with the discomfort of the things he's got to say because I, as the adult in the room, if you like, someone has to sit with the discomfort in order to get through and find the place where they can connect. And then from that connection, start to have a conversation that enables them to see a different perspective so that the healing then starts to take place inside that person themselves. It's not something that can be imposed. It has to happen inside them. They have to want to do it and they have to be encouraged just to see a different perspective. Because generally, once I can get people to see the different perspective on anti-Semitism, it's a really easy shift over to understanding um, racism. So the two things can often go hand in hand. Is this our call to action then from this episode? That Wiley, <laughs> she wants to chat. <laughs> yeah, I would just love, I doubt whether he'd speak to me. Um, I doubt it, but I would love to have a conversation with him and anybody else, anybody else from the black community who wants to um, unpack narratives that they will, will have been fed to them all their lives. So the thing I'm saying to my black friends is if ever you have a question about the Jews, the Jews' involvement in slavery, the Jews' involvement in anything to do with racism, come and talk to me. I will tell you the truth as I know it. If I don't know the answer, I will go and find out. But the one thing I'm never going to do is judge you harshly for what you bring to me. Bring it to me. I don't care what you bring it to me. As horrible as it is, bring it to me. Because at least if I know if they bring it to me, it's not still sat inside them, festering and attacking people. So, and I say the same to my Jewish friends, uh, my white Jewish friends. If there's an issue, if you want to understand anything about the African and African Caribbean communities, bring it to me. Let's have the conversation. If I know the answer, I'll tell you my truth. If I don't, I will go and find out for you. So I see this as a bit of, I feel like a bit of a conduit. I feel like I'm caught in a crossfire, but mm. also I want to own this place and use this place as a place for bringing peace and reconciliation between the two sides of myself and these two communities because they belong together. We belong together on the front line of fighting anti-Semitism and we belong together 
on the front line of fighting. We belong together on the fight against inequality, full stop. That's our natural home for both these people. So the fact that people have been allowed to drive, try to drive this wedge has been, is, is really upsetting. And that's why I'd happily stand with the targets on me in the crossfire than I describe it with a behind the settee watching videos of kittens on my Facebook page because I can't take any more <laughs> because I'm so scared. But I think this is, there's been times. So you said to me, this is a pivotal point. Sheheki Anu has come to my lips on more than one occasion, you know, thank God for sustaining me and keeping me alive to this point to see this great moment, to have this experience in this here and now. And that has happened to me quite a lot over the last few months. So I'm not ready to run off just yet. I have another question for you from my own. I just feel like I just want to absorb all your mm. knowledge. Um, I feel like anti-Zionism is now a line that anti-Semites might take in order to, I'm going to do it in yeah, yeah. Uh, speech marks, voice yeah. the socially acceptable anti-Semitic views. So, you know, yeah. is views on Israel aside, clearly anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are conflated now. Yeah. Where, where does one stop and the other start? Oh, interesting, yeah. So I had this, um, the Wiley Weekend, so the Wiley Weekend, where I'm jumping on some of these followers and commenting on their stuff and getting into dialogues with them. And I got into one where in the end he said, OK, I don't have a problem with you as a Jew. I just have a problem with the Zionists. And I thought, OK, is now the time to tell you that I'm a Zionist? And so... I dealt with that one and said, I really would love to have the conversation with you about Zionists. But before we have that, I just need to know which version of Zion, what do you mean by Zionists? Are you using the hijacked term to mean Zionists? Or are you meaning the word Zionist, meaning building a, a home for, the, for, for Jewish people? Where are you on this spectrum of Zionism? That's a, that's a, yeah, so Zionism comes up a lot. And now my take on it is happy to have the conversation about Zionism. Which one do you want to have? The hijacked version of Zionism or the, as I say, the true version of Zionism, because I'm a Zionist. Can you tell us the, the differentiation between those two for you? The hijacked version of Zionism is one which I think has come from the far left. And it's about how all Jews are racist, all Jews are imperialists, all Jews want to take over the world, all Jews want to oppress people, look at what they're doing now in terms of oppressing uh, Palestinian people, but it's the Zionists that are doing that. So my take on it is that um, I have a strange relationship with the current incumbent government in Israel, I have some real problems with those things, but I still support Israel and I still support Zionism. I believe that it's about you know, creating a home, a homeland for the Jews. And, and I have an interest in how we get through the, these troubles and create peace. 
I used to be very much into that. That was one of the first reasons I went and decided to train as a mediator, in actual fact, because I wanted to be able to mediate more conversations that I've realised as I've grown older, and I'm not so idealistic, that I think that it's very hard to mediate a conversation when you're not actually face-to-face with the people that are responsible for a lot of the negative narratives. And um, when I just go back to within whose interests is it that there is not peace in the Middle East? In whose interests is it that a constant, you know, that black people continue to be treated so poorly? In whose interests is it that everyone turns on the Jews? It's a white supremacist. And um, so for me, that's where the battle lies. These are invisible people that I'm never going to be able to reach but I'm going to be able to reach their victims and hopefully um, create a conversation or start a dialogue that leads to greater understanding between two people, two groups of people. That's a great message to finish on. Can you, can you tell us where people can find you if they want, where you can be found? Can you be found online? I guess on LinkedIn is where I'm mostly visible and they can just connect with me there and if anyone else. But I'd love to come back to you with more conversations at some point and also get some more people for you to have conversations with and to you and anyone that's viewing, even if people send in questions to you. Yeah, that would be great. On the back of this, yes, let's come back and revisit them. So, yeah, And we don't need to know who they are. If anyone's got any questions anonymously, they can put them and we can discuss them and talk about them if you like I'd love to do that that would be brilliant amazing we can pose those that would be amazing Mm. Sarah thank you for this this we really um such an important conversation and you are just a wealth of knowledge so it's been a real pleasure so I'm still learning and thank you for the lovely things you've said to me you've said some really nice things really affirming things to me tonight so I've been, I've spoken probably more than I normally would have done because I felt so welcome. Give that woman a show. Wow. What an energy. Amazing. That wasn't even a drop in the ocean of what she does. I know. Incredible. What we... This isn't even her job. No. What she's just talked about is just is just who she. Yeah. That's her. She does incredible yeah, work. Definitely. I mean, we've got. What to was get your big takeaway? My big takeaway from that was actually that we all have power in this, and that the conversations we need to be having the conversations with people in our worlds or that we mm. are in communication with, and actually that we don't we can't polarize people who don't agree we can't say that person's racist therefore i'm not speaking to them we've got to engage in dialogue and be curious and be open and meet them without judgment Mm. which is and that's she said it sit in the discomfort and meet them and talk to them and that's where the change happens and i would never have done that and that is a big takeaway for me What was your big takeaway? There was a couple of different things for me. I was fascinated to learn and honestly learn for the first time 
I may be embarrassed to say this, but I didn't know about generational trauma to that extent. I knew about systemic racism and how we need to combat that and ideas around that. But the actual carried trauma and the anxiety that brings and the stereotypes that has brought with it, I hadn't heard it phrased like that before. So that was a an actual just a, a, a learning moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. And what a gift she gave us saying that people could write in with questions and she'd come back on. We have to get a question time going, haven't we? So if you are intrigued or if if this has brought something up for you or if you totally disagree with anything she shared, we will not share any names if you write your questions in. So feel free to speak freely. Question time with Castro. Please, yeah. Get in touch. We want to continue this conversation. You can get in touch with us via our Instagram, which is at Pivot Points Podcast, or you can email us at pivotpointspod at gmail.com. And we will uh, get Sarah back on to answer your questions. If you like the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Your support means so much to us and it helps us spread the word. You can follow us on Instagram at Pivot Points Podcast, points with an S on the end, or email us at pivotpointspod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at gabriellamiller.coach or on my website, which is www.gabriellamillercoach.com. And my Instagram is at kinesthetica underscore coaching. And my website is kinestheticacoaching.com. All of these details are in the show notes and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Bye.